This program is intended for mature audiences only. Altitude adjustment may contain language, images, or other content that some may find offensive. Your discretion is advised. Welcome to Altitude Adjustment. I appreciate the chance to, to talk to you about it today and some of the themes that are in the book. Okay, very good. Oh, what's, what's the book about? Okay, the book is about, it's a, uh, I call it a bioconspiracy thriller um, about an ex-FBI agent who goes home to uh, a college town in Illinois for his dad's funeral and uh, quickly figures out that his dad didn't really die of a heart attack and uh, uh, starts to get suspicious of a professor of genetics at the University of Illinois and what's going on and some uh, historical things that happened there that um, cause him to sort of investigate and dig deeper and eventually uncovers a plot uh, to basically alter the human race. Wow. Okay. That, that seems pretty deep. So, so what was your inspiration um, for, for creating the book? Well, I mean, to create a book, I mean, I've always loved to tell stories. I've always had a good imagination. I like to entertain my friends with stories when I was a kid and that kind of thing. Um, I think the it's, it ties together like a lot of things that I'd thought about over the years. I mean, the book, I, I, I wrote the earlier drafts, you know, when I was younger and then I put it away for years and stuff. And so the story changed over time. But um, I was inspired by, I loved to read spy novels when I was younger, you know, Ian Fleming and uh, Frederick Forsyth and Len Dayton and those guys. Uh, and I um, always wanted to, to write something like that. So it was sort of a an amalgam of different inspirations from books I had read as well as sort of real world experience. Um, when we were younger, we all, we thought we were all going to become spies someday. So we uh, set out to train ourselves and, uh, and go on missions and things like that. So okay. sort of ability to wrap all that together. Okay. So in, in this particular book, um, what kind of, what kind of research did you do? Um, you know, to to come up with the storyline. Okay, the the the, the story, the overall storyline, I kind of put together from from things that I had just sort of learned generally. But then once I did that, I had to dig in and really do research on various topics. And a big part of the whole book is around genetics. And so I read every you know all sorts of stuff about genetics and um, did research and took notes and tried to figure things out and. Eventually, I, um, and it's actually kind of an interesting story. I was at a writing conference and I was talking with a woman, telling her a little bit about the book. And she's like, oh, you should talk to my I think niece or something or, or cousin. She works in genetics. So uh, she had an unusual name. So I looked her up. I was able to Google her. And she said, oh, she lives in Connecticut. And you know, here's her name. And I Googled her. And then the news story that I found actually said that she had just left Connecticut and moved to Cincinnati, where I live. So uh, I was able to track her down and, you know, get together. We had lunch a couple of times and she read stuff and, and she'd come back. Oh, no, no, that's not the right mutation. You want to do this one. And, you know, she'd send me a, a some journal article or whatever. And I'd read that and work it in. Or she'd say, no, you need to change this wording here because that's not quite the right term. But um, so she helped me clean all that stuff up. And that was that was actually kind of fun to work with her on that. Um, and then the other thing was I was I was sort of looking for an overall theme. And that's when I kind of hit on this this whole issue of um, sort of you know morality versus religion versus um, versus science and how do those things interact with you? How do they relate to each other? How do they conflict with each other? How do you resolve differences of point of view in those? 
Um, and a, a theme I kind of hit on is a, you know, a belief that I have that, you know, sort of morality and religion are what mathematicians would call orthogonal vectors. In other words, you can at any given, you can be any given point on either one and be anywhere else on the other, on the other dimension. So there are people that are, you know, very religious and very moral. There are people that at least you could say maybe they're not religious, they consider themselves religious and they're not moral. There are people that are, you know, not religious and moral. And there's people that are not religious and, and are not moral. Um, and so the main characters in the book all portray the, the intersections of those dimensions. Gotcha. Um, and so part of the way the story, you know, develops is around how, the, how, they, how they either work with each other or conflict with each other based on those points of view. So... So in putting the in putting that book together, or or creating your story, mm -hmm. um, keeping those those parameters in mind, the relationship mm -hmm. between one character to another, and you're attempting to flush out different moral moral behaviors and and um, dynamics between mm -hmm. people. Um, how were you able to, how, how, first off, how comfortable or happy are you with what you've achieved as far as um, flushing all of that out? Is it, is it more, let me start there. Okay. I, I guess what I say is I, I'm very happy with the, the end structure. One thing I faced is that I tend to be wordy. And I, when I first started writing this, you know, this is my first novel. I didn't know that, you know, longer isn't better. I thought, well, people love this because they'll get more for their money. And so the first draft of this thing was like 150,000 words. And then someone said, oh my God, no, first time novelist, you're not gonna sell anything over 90,000. So you have to cut. Okay. And so there was a lot of like, a lot of the research I had done, I just couldn't wait to get that in the book. So there was a lot of conversations with people explaining things and stuff. And, you know, as I worked more with uh, with coaches and so on and writing and editors, it's like, no, no, you, you gotta, you gotta boil it down. So. There's some of the background that you know I would love to put back in in the director's cut or something like that, but um, but I think in general I'm I'm really happy with where it ended up because I think it it brings out some of those things and and the characters get a chance to discuss those points of view and you know ultimately the 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 main character the protagonist sort of comes to a conclusion about you know where do morals come from and, and what does that mean for him and you know is, how does that line up with what he what he believes and what he used to believe that kind of thing. Hmm. I, 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 that sounds like something I would, you know, really get into. Um, so for me, I uh, I have a tendency, especially with my friends and stuff, to have these um, really philosophically deep conversations. So mm -hmm. do you feel like that you expressed enough philosophical um, uh, ambiguity? in the story yeah because you know with the lead the, the main protagonist you know he, he's represents the sort of non-religious moral and he teams up with a young woman who's a head of compliance at a bank who actually has had some interactions with the <clears throat> the bad guy earlier on and so she's the represents the sort of religious and moral um and they have some discussions around you know sort of what what religion means to them or doesn't mean to them and and you know the, the you know and, and she even espouses this sort of point of view of you know if if there is a god and she believes in there that there is one you know that he, what he cares about is people like learning how to 
love and 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 support each other and not kill each other because someone else's explanation of why it's important to be a good person happens to be a little different from theirs you know mm -hmm. um the 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 resolution between the two antagonists you know one is the is the religious zealot the other is the total you know atheist scientist and, and basically they are willing to work together because they both have common goals but they both kind of look down and despise each other and, and think of the other one as sort of misguided and uh you know a little wacky or whatever or not quite informed mm -hmm. uh, but they're, they they manage to to work together for that reason um but yeah i mean I, I, the original draft had a lot more backstory on the the one um the the guy who's like the religious zealot who's uh who's you know the bad guy about sort of how he developed you know evolved from being this precocious cute little kid and sort of you know gets the morality beat out of him over as he grows up until finally you know he gravitates to this fringe group as a, a source of identity that you know gives him validity but i had to kind of take all that back out because it just made the, the book too long yeah so you were talking about um somewhere down the line you're going to try to to bring that back or at least put that out there in some form yeah, I mean, the, the, actually, his backstory. I, I took some of the key chapters, and they're out on the website, so you you could read those mm. and kind of see see where they are. It's not all of them, but uh, but I put some of those out there. Uh, okay. Some of the other stuff I, I haven't haven't done anything with. It's just in in old drafts, that kind of thing. Okay, um, and I, I did show the cover of the book. I'll I'll show it again. Mm -hmm. So there there are people who um, are listening to the audio only, uh, and you did mention the. Um, title of the book, uh, The Pangea Solution, uh, Solve the Equation, Save the World, by Chuck Jacobs. Charles Jacobs wrote sure. the book. If you look it up, for it'll got to be Charles Jacobs. You won't find him. You won't find Chuck. <laughs> and and that, I no. found that, you know, a little interesting. I know, so we had talked a couple of times, or we sent messages, mm -hmm. we had talked, and... Um, I know you you mentioned Chuck and but everything I see is Charles and then there's these instances where you you put Charles and then you'll put Chuck uh in in parentheses mm -hmm. in the middle of the name so so I, I wasn't I didn't know exactly where to go with that but I know you Yeah, it's like once Chuck. I well, Yeah, no, I prefer Chuck. But once I picked something and I, you know, started using that, then I couldn't switch, right? You can't have exactly. a website with a name different than what's on the book and blah blah blah. So sure. um that's just where I ended up. So, so this is just your first uh, attempt, or a first um, iteration of your book career, and you mm -hmm. intend to to do more as far as that goes. Yeah, I've got a sequel to it that looks at sort of all sorts of other issues, and um, and then I've actually got a, an idea for a prequel as well that um, oh, okay. goes back to some family history of like his mother. No. Oh. So. It's like a whole new adventure story, but that turns out it takes place. It, it it's his mother that's the heroine of the story. Okay. And uh, you 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 come across her in this book, but only like she she died when he was a young boy. Um, but in in his in, in going through what he goes through to to try to solve his father's murder, he actually learns a bunch of stuff about his mother that he never knew was true, and you know things he always thought was true about his father and so on over his lifetime. He he sort of learns them some secrets okay yeah. so okay go ahead I have a question um so you did some research you you went into this thing thinking about religion and morals so mm -hmm. you 
Did you learn anything that changed your views on religion and morals uh, as far as which came first, which influences the other, how, how they're separate? Um, yeah, I mean, there's certainly some like personal exploration on that issue. So you know, one, of the, one of the things that it looks, talks about is sort of like, wh where do morals come from? So obviously the, the, you know, if you're strongly religious, you say these are the rules of you know, a deity or whatever, you know, being promulgated through wise people. Um, the, uh, the, the scientist, you know, Bill, his point of view is, no, that's all you know, crap, that basically um, human beings evolved as a species in a very hostile environment. And, you know, they couldn't just survive as individuals, they had to survive as a group. And so that morals were more or less um, developed through natural selection, that the, the rules that kept uh, groups alive, as opposed to individuals were the ones that survived and therefore got passed down through generations. And that those, that, that social DNA is what honed and defined morals. And then his point of view is that, you know, now we don't live in that world. Now, man's biggest threat is its own, is it, mankind's own success and therefore the, the the morals have to change and you can't be squeamish about that you know that's kind of that's kind of his point of view that's so um true. you know oh. so yeah and then the, the another person in the book who who shows up basically that um what happens is that the protagonist you know you know they have your classic confrontation with the with the bad guy and so on and and in the guy, the, the bad guy explaining sort of all these points of view and that you, it turns out that his solution to the, 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 um, the problem is not necessarily as heinous as the, as the protagonist thought. And, and in realizing that, you know, all of these things make logical sense, but he just sort of kind of feels in his gut that it's wrong. So what does that say about him? Is he, is he lacking in morality? And then he has a discussion with another person sort of at the very end where the guy's saying, no, it makes perfect sense, but you can't, you can't prove morality. It's, it comes from the people that raise you. It's the, it's the sense of empathy that your parents give you that let you see the world, not just through your own point of view, but the point of view of others and, and experience things as they experience them and realize that, you know, others have feelings and you need to, you know, support them and respect that. And so that's sort of how he comes to terms with it all. So is that kind of saying uh, that morality is more experience-based than written in stone, pretty much? Yeah, although I think, you know, and this is not something I get into in the book, but it was one of those discussions that got pulled out was sort of the idea that if you look at across religions, for the most part, the, the rules about what it means to be good are all pretty similar. So, you know, does it really matter kind of what where they came from i mean different people have different opinions about that but you know the, if they're all this if they're all pretty similar focus on that worry about that don't worry about the why you know or the or the where they came from as much as that they are important and that you need to follow them and and a personal opinion is that like a lot of you know very religious people get more caught up and you have to agree with them on the why regardless of whether you you or they follow the what you know and that to me doesn't make any sense. Gotcha. So, you know, and, and this is something I've thought about is like religion, there's a lot of things that go together when you talk about a religion. And to some degree, your definition of religion becomes um, sort of things that are like what I believe in. So, um, you know, and if, it, if it, religion doesn't include one of those things, 
then maybe, you know, it's not really a religion. So I've had, you know, um, like for instance, Buddhism doesn't tend to get carried his way as much on the, on the, how we got here and, and that kind of thing as much as we're here and what are we going to do about it? Um, but within, you know, like within a religion, it seems to me there's a, a number of things that it does. When one is it gives you a sense of rules of what it means to be good and bad, you know, the things you should do and the things you shouldn't. And as I said, I think those kinds of things are pretty, pretty universal across all different religions. I mean, the, the finer points of what you can eat and what you can't eat and what days you can eat them and what things you can say and so on are be different. But by and large, you know, the, the, the idea of sort of treating other people well and, and respecting people and so on are, are pretty universal. Um, and then the second thing it gives you is a reason why you're supposed to follow those rules. So, you know, in Christianity, it's so you can go to heaven and you don't go to hell. Um, and Judaism's a slight variation on that, but by and large, it's, you know, to prove yourself in this life so you enjoy the afterlife. In, in something like Hinduism, it's, you know, you want to come back and have a better life the next time. And Buddhism, it's sort of develops on that and says, okay, you want to come back as a better existence. Ultimately, your goal is to, is to leave that cycle of constant rebirth and so on by achieving this, you know, state of bliss. Um, the third thing is sort of what it gives you a sense of purpose and meaning in life. You know, you're part of a bigger picture, you're part of a plan, you're part of a, uh, a set of goals, and, and, and it gives you a connection to, to the, the world, the universe, and so on. So it, it gives you that kind of meaning. Um, and then there's things like it gives you a common culture and language to talk to people. You have the same sort of, you know, the, the, the stories you tell, the, the stories from the Bible or the Quran or wherever, you know, you should have those in common. You can use them as allegories for, for other lessons. And it's a social thing. It brings people together and you share people, you know, things with people that are common. And then you get into things that I'm not sure really sort of are necessary parts of religion. And that are things like, you know, a documentation of history. Does that there's a holy writing have to be a literal document of all the historical things that happened? And then the next thing is like, is it is it really an explanation of the science of the universe or how sort of that that the picture of all the, the the how the physical world works and and to me i don't think that necessarily has to be part of that but if you have most you know people in the western world think of religion it has all those things together um and so the question is sort of you know do all those things have to belong together can you get things from different places and it seems to me that ultimately boil it down the the, the real thing that's core to religion spirituality and so on is that sense of a purpose and connection with the with the world and um the reason you're you know sort of a reason to be here yeah yeah I agree. does that make sense i'm sorry it's sort of a diatribe but uh, no no yeah. that's quite all right mm. um the, th Go ahead. the thing with history though is that now uh history has become as more and more people see it his story which was dependent upon the person that wrote the story because yes. when people look back at the same uh timeline and things that happen they come up with totally different interpretations or of what happened. So I think we're dealing with that in society nowadays. For example, this, the 1619 project, mm -hmm. there's a lot of feedback on that because people are saying that there is a misrepresentation in this new uh, version of uh, history and uh, there's a lot of fight going on about it. Yeah, I know. and it, it, it... It's, it seems to manifest as sort of a feeling of, 
you know, this was back there, Vietnam War, you know, the America love it or leave it kind of thing. It's like, you know, the way you show appreciation for your country is by admitting no wrong and, and, and saying it's perfect. And, you know, you wouldn't do that with your kid. It doesn't help your kid. You need to like, own up to your mistakes and and do something about it. It doesn't mean you don't like your kid. It means you move on. You know, you, you've, you've learned your, you start to learn lessons and you change and you evolve. Um, Maybe that's so absolutely screwed up adults now because their childhood wasn't handled well. Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of that. Yeah. Sure. Right. Yeah. Okay. I, so, so one of the things that you had mentioned is, um, is it important to understand why? So, um, you know, you have treat people, um, treat people nice. That's, that's, that's what a good person does. The kind of the bottom line. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so, so then the question becomes, is it, is it important to know why, why that, why that is? Um, and, and so I, I want to make sure that I understand, um, when you mentioned that, is that, is that one of the ones, one of the, um, things that maybe that the, the, the reason why is not as important as, uh, performing that action? Well, I, I think that, well, I mean, in the end, you know, I, I do think you, it, the most important thing is the action, but I think the why gives you the ability to decide, you know, what that action should be. And I, I just think that to some degree, the why coming from that sense of empathy of, of connection to your fellow human being and seeing him as a, as a human being, him or her or whatever, is the important thing that 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 gives you the ability to to know in your gut what the right thing is to do as opposed to you know i'm going to get punished if i don't do the right thing you know I, I don't think much good ever comes from people who or you know animals or anything that do anything solely out of fear of being punished i mean that does not teach you how to make the right decision especially in an ambiguous situation All right and I, I think that was how i was trying to approach it is um, I, I, you know, the, in the Christian religion, I'm, I'm familiar with a few, but not many of the world's religions, but usually there is a carrot and a stick aspect of mm -hmm. the religion. And in a lot of the people that we see today that are fanatical, they've, um, they've not looked at the wise and they only mm -hmm. looked at, um, you know, I, so so let's take um, let's take uh, choice in the United States. Mm -hmm. Some people you ask them why, why are you pro-choice or why are you anti-choice, mm -hmm. and uh, they'll they'll refer back this you know it's in the Bible, and they don't know, understand why what what how did that come to be or or you know why is that significant that mm -hmm. you be pro-choice. And so the, it becomes a, it becomes an argument where they don't understand necessarily the origins, but they stick to something that someone told them. They may not even have read the, the passages or, or mm -hmm. delved into the, 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 the scriptures. And yet they've adopted this philosophy based on something that they've heard and don't understand the, the reasons are behind it. And so 
then then it becomes a difficult situation if you try to add context to it because there mm-hmm. are things that have context there are mm-hmm. things that that there are doctrines that have context that you have to understand the context in order to fully understand what they're trying to say here or what they're trying to accomplish with that and so mm-hmm. so i've had some so so you know the why is is I look at it and think um, there's so many people that don't understand the why and they just cling to because, because like you say, religion gives them identity. It gives them belonging. It gives them a place to be. And they cling to that uh, because they don't have anything else or because they, they, they may be socially inept and it gives them instant credibility within a group. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it also, you know, if you take that to, to extreme, uh, like I said, if you don't understand the whys, then you, you miss the whole logic or the point of that particular, uh, teaching. Yes. But I think you also have to be careful that a lot of things that are supposedly, you know, in the Bible or in the Quran or whatever really aren't in there. Right. Um, and so it's, but if you don't, if you if that's your if you if you're willing to accept that as a statement for every rule, then you don't question, you know, you don't you just sort of take that at face at face value. And um, I, I think of an experience like my my father. I was later on he was a professor of sociology, but when I was born, he was working for USAID, um, Association for International Development in Iran. So I was born in Iran, um, and. He, I was there for my first year. He was there for two years, but he he did, was doing field work and he recounted a case where um, they were at some little village and they're along a river and there's like a cow peeing in the river and like just down river, they're collecting their drinking water. And the guy that was with them, my father didn't speak Farsi. So pointed that out that that was not a very safe thing to do. And the guy said, oh, no, no, it's 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 written in the Quran, you know, after 15 feet of flow, the water's purrified. And the guy pulled out a Quran and said, all right, show me where this passage is. You know, <laughs> of course, the guy had no idea. And, you know, of course, it's not in there. But I mean, there's so many things like that that, that get taken as, well. oh, you know, the Bible says this. I mean, even mm-hmm. you talk about pro-choice. I mean, the original Roe v. Wade was decided by a, a Republican-appointed uh, court, and it was hailed by the Southern Baptist Convention as great legislation, as a great decision. And it wasn't until later that um, the whole theme of that got sort of used to try to create divisiveness and turned into this, you know, religious, this deeply religious issue. Now, obviously, everybody has their own opinions about that. And I can see both sides. But um, so some of that was just created in order to create division uh, for for vote getting. I mean, it was like, there was actually a show where they had the interview of the guy who did the original sort of PR films around that to try to like get people all upset about this. and, and he said he wished he'd never touched it, but you know, hey, he was hungry for work and had no idea where it was going to go. Um, so some of these things that are now sort of so ingrained as part of somebody's belief system, you know, maybe fairly recent additions. And that's where you, you've got to get back to that. So what 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 is it that you're really you're really saying? I mean, people people call themselves pro-life and they're just pro-birth. After that, they don't want money for you know aid for dependent children or early education or any of these things, it's like, no, they deserve whatever suffering they get, but God damn it, that kid's gotta be born. 
yeah, that's you know, where, where's the pro-life in that? Mm -hmm. I agree. You know, yeah, abortion, you know, you could, I don't know. This is too touchy a topic, but I mean, my opinion, like right the moment after conception, that's not a life. Five minutes before birth, that's a life. Somewhere in between you cross a line. I don't know where that is. Um, but, you know, there's more to, you know, there's more to life than just being born. And people that are, you know, you know, lack of access to health care kills people, you know. Yeah. Poverty kills people. So where's the where are the pro-life people on that issue? Like, why aren't they out there getting upset about that? Well, yeah. so go ahead. Well, it's pretty clear that most of those people are uh, probably a little more privileged than the average uh, person that's uh, going to probably suffer or have a hard life. So they're not really concerned about that or mm -hmm. they feel like, you know, God will make a way. Maybe that's their philosophy or their belief. But yeah, that's a good point that, you know, after the person is born, what do they care? You know, it's, it's pretty obvious that there's a drop. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. And, and so for, so some of the things that I see is that, um, that, that gives them an, an argument, you know, I'm pro-life. Uh, th so they want to fix that. Um, and like you say, they don't, because they don't understand the whys of what, what is pro-life. There's, mm -hmm. you know, someone, someone, uh, wants to use that as a uh, wedge issue against um, another politician. Mm -hmm. So they get, they, they tap into this anger and frustration about um, pro-life. And like you say, because the other things are important, you know, what, what really is the definition of pro-life? You know, are you making sure that people live long and, you know, that modern medicine or, uh, you know, even understanding if modern medicine is keeping people alive or better. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what, what is, what is uh, a, a, you know, I, I would imagine we'd get a huge difference in what is quality of life. Um, you know, what is quality of life? Uh, and, and we'd get, you know, varying. So, so we're not, we don't seem to be trying to find solutions we seem to be trying to find wedge issues to beat each other up on. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. That's true. Yeah. I, I just, I, I mean, we could have yeah. a discussion about what quality of life is if they thought it was important, but I don't think a lot of people will want to go there. You know, they just want to draw their line in the stand and say, all right, you know, pro-life, you know, Abort, no abortion, abortion, you know, we, we need to take it a lot further and deeper than that. Yeah, because, it, you know, it, it, yeah, I mean, it affects this potential kid for the rest of their life. It affects the mothers, it affects families sure. and everything else. And one of the um, things, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm, that's it. No, one of the things that was um, a part of describing the book was that you talked about um, radicals attacking the food supply in a society mm -hmm. in, a, in a world where um, we have escalating birth so whereas years ago we didn't we we weren't at seven billion people on the planet mm -hmm. so now we've got seven billion people on the planet 
And in order to feed all of those people, we're killing the planet. Yeah. So, so then having that discussion about, you know, what is quality of life? What is uh, pro-life? You know, uh, is it people are dying because of the food, because in, in our attempts to make the food supply feed 7 billion people, we're poisoning people. Growth yeah. hormones, growth hormones, um, uh, you name it, uh, over, over uh, farming soil, um, uh, you know. Well, climate change, you know, is climate change. Off, right. Yeah, it's destroying cropland. I mean, yes, it will shift to new latitudes or whatever, but those latitudes may have dramatically different rainfall. And by the time it, ca- you know, we catch up with being able to farm those lands, you know, who knows where we are and and it's a diff- it's different groups of people so it affects people at certain latitudes more than people at other latitudes and um yeah i mean it's it, it it's a almost like a get, it's getting hung up on one thing to the exclusion of almost anything else yeah. um but that's one of those things it's like you know in in the book when the the hero is talking to the the villain or whatever you want to call him you know it, part of the reason he has trouble sort of refuting what the guy is saying is he kind of realizes that yeah there are too many people you know there are seven billion people and we're running out of food and 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 water and you know it's causing pollution and everything else like so so what do you do about it how do you how do you address that with whatever we're doing right now and Um, and the difficulty is is that we're not trying to have those discussions we're just punching at each other and anyone that tries to have that discussion is ignored because it's not it's nobody is emotionally invested in solutions we're emotionally invested in winning yeah i'm not, I'm not sure i would agree but there, that nobody's invested in solution i think there are a lot of people out there that are, that are heavily invested in trying to fix things okay. i think the problem is that it requires sacrifice by a lot of people. It requires change, which a lot of people are afraid of. It requires reallocations of resources and the people with the resources may not want them reallocated. Um, and it requires glo- you know, global cooperation that a lot of people are afraid of. Yeah, it seems like every fix to the, uh, the problems, the ecological problems we have uh, involves going up against a massive industry that that you know this complex industrial society we have you you have to dismantle something huge just to make a, a small change and that's a real problem i i agree yeah. i think uh, also that even on smaller levels so we have we have smaller small countries that mm-hmm. are attempting to be a part of the global community so they do things that create more problems they want to they want to be a part of the rather than um, forego any kind of um, nuclear program they want to implement a nuclear program and then they're going to take materials that are going to be around forever and ever to try to be a part of the, the larger conversation um, mm-hmm. so when I say um, that I don't think that there are people that are invested in the solution. I guess what I mean is uh, there are people that are invested in the solution, but, but they have limited influence 
it seems, in in proffering those solutions to the, the, the global community. So I agree with you. There are people who don't want to change. And they, and they, they can look at the, the problem. They can see the problem. It, it's clearly defined. Um, and then still not do what is necessary to make those changes. And so I guess I'm, I'm looking at the, the difference in the scale of the number of people that are trying to find solutions and the number of people who are pushing back against any kind of change. Yeah. I mean, you know, think about it like, okay, you're India or China. You know, so there's a there's an attitude and I can't say that it's, un, you know, it's ridiculous that, hey, you know, you guys developed and built these great economies in the West by basically sucking the resources from all over the world and, and building your kind of like now it's our turn. But you're telling us, no, we can't do that because now we're the the drain on the on the, the planet where were the ones polluting, you know, you kind of like you got you got to do your part. Now, it's kind of our turn. And now all of a sudden you're saying, no, 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 you don't get to do that because there's too many people now. And so that's not going to work. Um, and then there are the people that sort of feel that like, well, technology will save us. I don't know what technology. I'll, I'll let somebody else develop that. But, you know, it's always come through before. And we've always managed to come up with that great discovery that's going to fix things. And you know, maybe, maybe not. I, I, so there is that eternal optimism. That's a, that's a part of, uh, the stories that we tell, uh, you know, people don't want to hear stories where, um, where the, the, the planet dies at the end. They always want to know that, um, something's going to come through at the last minute. So, you know, they'll, uh, countless number of movies where the ending was changed. Um, you know, even in apocalyptic movies, there's some one person left to do something to bring the life back to the, uh, to the planet. Um, mm -hmm. And so getting people to see that, 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 that we can reach a point of no return, that we can yeah. reach a point where all mm -hmm. of the scientific advances that we've made all of the desire in our heart all of the beliefs that we have isn't going to turn around um what we've what we've struggling with to try to survive on this planet so yeah so i you know it, if you if you if you give them giving people what they need in order to be positive can have a negative impact if people don't want to see the realism of it. So if, yeah. if I, if I, if, if there's something benefiting me, so like I, I was uh, giving Warren, we were having a discussion and it's talking about his car. I said, people don't want to give up things that they have regardless of the impact it has on other people. So we know that uh, global warming is happening. We know that um, uh, fossil fuel burning vehicles is the major, one of the major polluters. Nobody, no one is talking about 
or very little conversation is having around um, electric cars or finding alternative uh, transportation routes because nobody wants to give up their vehicle, especially in America. We are, we are, there are a couple of things that are just never to be even discussed. Giving up your gun and giving up your car. That's just not supposed to happen. That's mm-hmm. so. I mean, I think there's in the, in the automotive world. Yeah. I mean, I'm a, I'm a car freak. I've got old cars and stuff and I, you know, I don't, I love driving them, you know? Um, but I think there's a lot, I mean, the more and more you're seeing a lot of the electric cars. I mean, I think they're becoming a lot more, a lot more common and there's some chicken and egg there, right? Because you, why buy an electric car if you can't charge it, you can't go somewhere and charge it. So they're, the charging stations have to be there before people buy the cars, but people aren't going to build the charging stations till people show up with their cars, you know, and need them. So, but I think there's a progress there and there, there are companies committing to being almost completely electric, you know, maybe not soon enough. I don't know, but at least they're, they're giving some lip service to that. Um, and, and the other thing is cars nowadays, the modern cars are, are much less polluting than God, the things I grew up with as a kid. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think, you know, there's also power generation. Like, what are you going to do about that? Um, right now, electric cars are, you know, coal and gas fired, really. It's mm-hmm. because they have to generate the electricity somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the good news is you can do that somewhere outside of, you know, the inner, you know, the downtown of the city where all the cars are generating their pollution. But um, ultimately, you've got to find a way to generate power in a clean way as well. So, I, and, yeah. and which is why, you know, when, when I say, so when I say cars, I'm including electric cars that we may oh, okay. have to, we may have to give up it, cars. We just may mm-hmm. have to give up cars. You know, I, we may, ha- if we're not going to give up cars, we need to give up people. And I'm not saying we terminate people. I'm saying, mm-hmm. you know, we have to, we can't sustain the pace that we're we're at. And believe that the planet is not going to die. Eventually, yeah. So, so, so we need to take some measures on on ourselves. It, it, mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be imposed by, you know, government standards, but people have to look and see there's problems here. And you know what what can I do to fix this problem? What can I do? How do I limit my carbon footprint? If we know that carbon mm-hmm. is the problem, how do I limit my carbon footprint? We, for the longest time, we still have people arguing about recycling. Simple recycling, simply separating, uh, you know, try not to uh, buy too many plastics, try not to use too mm-hmm. many plastics, use recyclable goods, making sure that, you know, whatever whatever plastics we create can be recycled right now most of that stuff yeah. can't be recycled yeah. or it's not recycled. i mean a whole lot of what we were recycling got you know put on barges and shipped overseas right and, and a it, lot of that ended up in landfill landfills in china and malaysia and so on because you know unless you separate things into six different buckets by type of plastic and blah, blah it's mm-hmm. not that easy to recycle a lot of that stuff that's what people in germany you know basically you get fined if you don't recycle something and if you don't do it properly in this country, I don't think we'd ever we'd ever get there. So, no. a lot of the quote recycling is just dumped into a different landfill from from the garbage. Yeah, ultimately. I think it's pretty much a sham. Right, and that's and that's 
we are the big players. That's part of the problem, yeah. We are the yeah. big yeah. players. Like you mentioned, other people, emerging economies are going, hey, you guys are doing this and this and this. And, you know, how, why are you trying to tell us how to, to be better global citizens when you're not right. trying to be a better global citizen? Yeah. You know, you, people taking private jets. People and private jets are popular. We, most of the videos that you see, or um, when you watch television, it's um, you know people sipping wine and and extravagant, um, opulent lifestyles, and that's what's pushed, as opposed to necessarily just the interactions with people, just mm -hmm. you know the storyline. Yeah, and so. And so, you know, people have this idea, well, I want to, I want a yacht. I want a 50,000 foot yacht. I want to be able to, to sail the globe in a, my own private um, spaceship, you know? Mm -hmm. And so we, we keep doing that thinking um, that we're going to solve still uh, solve problems at the same time. But, but yeah. the, the thing is that, like you mentioned, no one wants to give up anything. So the question yeah, I mean, becomes, I, how do we get there? Yeah, I mean, I, to that point, I, and I can't remember the exact statistics, but it was something like the the U.S. with whatever it was, five percent of the world's population, like uses some massive, like fifty percent, I don't know, something ridiculous in terms of the world's resources. Which yeah. saying like the whole world could only support about six hundred million people, not seven billion, at the level of the average American, which is not flying around in a jet and <laughs> you know that kind of stuff. It's, it's living in a, a double wide or, you know, um, a three bedroom apartment. Um, so, you know, you do find better ways, more efficient ways to turn resources into energy consumables and so on, but that only goes so far. So what do you do? And, and people say like, so what's the solution? It's like, well, why do you presume there is one? I don't know. Oh, that, now that's scary. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's scary. Yeah. Well, thank, yeah, thanks, thanks, Chuck. Just, <laughs> that one out there. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I get pretty cynical at times. So I don't think it's cynical. I think it's. I think. I think it's looking at the situation and looking at one of the very real possibilities. One of the very real possibilities is that there is no solution. Um, you know, we'd all like to believe in fairy tales. We all like to believe that no matter what we do, at some point, it's going to work itself out. And for the most part, on our daily lives, um, you know, you're late for work. You're late for work one too many times and you beg forgiveness or you do something and somehow that works out. Mm -hmm. You you drive down the street, you drive too fast, the police officer pulls you over, you're you either know them or family member or something, something gets you out of the ticket. So you don't pay the price for everything that you do. And mm -hmm. that in and of itself leads people to say, it's going to be okay. Something good is going to happen and this is going to fix itself. And I, I don't think it's pessimistic to go, you know, one day that luck is not going to work. One day you're yeah. not going to be able to fix it. And, and you know, I mean, the, the, the dire scenarios, not everybody dies, but um, it's not going to be pretty. It's not going to be pretty. You know, and it, it could be mass starvation. It could be, you know, wars. I mean, you know, um, 
Because people are going to get desperate over food, water, things like that. So we just, we've just experienced a pandemic, mm-hmm. which was made worse because there's 7 billion people on the planet. The number of people that would have died had we not had 7 billion people would not have reached as high as it did because of the proximity of, you know, large communities. Um, it makes it easier to spread that kind of stuff. But, you know, as we see, trying to explain that to people becomes another problem. Wear the freaking mask. It's, yeah. it's I mean, a simple solution. People say, well, it's my choice. It's my body. Yeah, it's like, yeah, but so stopping for a red light, that's a personal choice about your safety. It, it happens to affect other people too, you know, right? just like wearing your mask, you know, and then, um, they don't see it that way. And, and that's, and that's the, I think, part of the difficulty that we're having is 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 in america we talk so much about freedoms and you know Mm -hmm. that but we don't i I think we're just starting to really have that conversation about what freedom means it doesn't mean free from responsibility it means freedom to be responsible for yourself yeah yeah but but so many people think it, think it means freedom to do what I want to do. And right. that's the problem. They think it me- means freedom from responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's sort of what they call in the, in the legal world, it's like a right-duty relationship. You have a right, but that right confers on you a duty as a well. Duty. And that people scream about what they can do, and they don't really spend a lot of time thinking about what they should do. And that's a different thing. And I think, you know, some people obviously care very much about what you should do. Um, but not enough people. And that's um, the, hopefully, where we will get to is, you know, we've, so the pandemic brought visually some of the challenges that we face in trying to do large scale change. Is that Mm -hmm. people are gonna push back, numbers of, sizable numbers of people are going to push back simply because you're going in a, in a different direction. Um, and so how do we structure the conversation so that people understand you're being asked to wear a mask is for your benefit that you get, you get some benefit out of it. And that, that is something that's necessary because we have 7 billion people and you're pushing to not allow people to family plan. So you're 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 not allowing people to family plan. You're encouraging people to have large families, um, and and then you don't want to implement precautions for communities that have grow large, where nature does not care about what your desires are. They don't, nature doesn't care that, uh, that your doctors say they can give you a pill to, to make you lose weight. Um, because of, you know, people being packed into small spaces, um, you know, because we taint the food supply with nitrates and, and preservatives that aren't natural to the body, um, 
that it is going to weaken our systems and it's going to make us more vulnerable to stuff like this. So, but then the question is like, let's say you do all that and you, and everybody's protected and you cure more disease. I mean, these are all natural control mechanisms over the size of the population. I mean, something's going to limit the size of the population, right? So, yeah, you don't you don't want to die of COVID, but like, so what are we going to do? Like, how how do we limit the, the 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 growth of the human population on Earth, other than forcing it to face these kinds of you know catastrophic events and that's that takes a lot of self-discipline all across the world uh, or it takes it takes a few um, very um, significant strategically placed books uh, the Pangea <laughs> solution uh, and the prequel and the sequel so that people get to see for those people that are going to read it to see that there's more to um, being a part of a society than just enjoying its freedoms. That you got to pick up a row, you got to pick up an oar, and you got to row with everybody else. So that means if you got to wear a mask, you wear the mask. And then, and then you allow people to to plan their families, so that we don't, you know, so, so I can come up with all of these great solutions or not but i can come up with all these solutions these the the solution is how do we communicate uh, and get people to understand that that they're a part of a team and that um doing things um individually does not help the team and and we're not it's not just america it's canada it's south america it's you know, other countries, um, we impact each other. It, there is no idea that that if you eliminate globalism, that life is going to be better. That's it's just no way to do that. Not anymore. Yeah. Not anymore. Maybe in the eighteen hundreds, but not anymore. Yeah. Right. They, you mm. know, they farmed out all of the they farmed out all of the resources. You know, so now they have to go to another. Um, to country that has resources or certain things don't grow in this environment that are necessary. So, okay. Well, I have one question. You, you talked about uh, family planning, which is, I guess, a good idea, unless you're one of those pro-lifers that doesn't like abortion. But how about we look at another model, China? They have population control. Is that going too far, you think, or? Does that fit? I'd like to give you a chance to answer that first, Charles. Who me? Yeah, Chuck. Oh, uh, I mean, obviously, it's it, my gut reaction is that's going too far. Um, but I think th there's an in between there too. I mean, which is you know just widespread contraception. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I know there are people that it, they're opposed to it for religious reasons, but it seems to me down the list of things, it's a whole lot less egregious than a lot of other things. And that that ultimately is what gives, you know, mankind the ability to survive. You got to control the size of your population or, you know, nature, God, whatever will do it for you. Um, the problem is, of course, that, you know, providing contraception flies in the face of much of the West's communication in developing countries. It flies in the face of, you know, 
basically it, it empowers women and that's fearful to a lot of people in a lot of different parts of the world. Um, there's, there's all sorts of barriers beyond just the technology and the communication, you know, the, the, the general communication. Yeah. So as, you know, uh, um, as, as far as population control, as far as, um, you know, people understanding, we, I, I just think that we have to find a way to communicate to people because like you were saying, you know, China tried the one child, the no left, uh, one child um, act, yeah. and they found that it had adverse effects. That right. they were terminating the female children, and so now they've got this large population of male children that have no female partners. <laughs> so, so the the idea, is, so so my thought is, is that we need to be able to find a way to communicate with people to help them understand that when you push for things like um, not allowing contraception or not allowing people to make personal decisions about the fam their family planning, you are, you are dooming us to try drastic measures when things go horribly wrong. And, and as uh, Chuck has mentioned, if we don't, we have the opportunity, we have the brain power to make decisions about our planet. If we don't take that opportunity to do something useful, the planet will defend itself. And then we'll have to live with that. Absolutely. All right. I had a comment. I don't. So uh, we'll read this comment and then we'll get out of here. Uh, okay. If you're going to be, if you're going for controlled population techniques, such as what China employs, then you may as well implement class based restrictions. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. Class class based is not necessary for a, a solution because uh, you can implement a solution across classes, which which doesn't impact the class, the class system, the caste system. Um, I want to thank you very much, Chuck, for coming on. Absolutely. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate. Oh, yeah, I appreciate you. So you that, that kind of discussion is in my wheelhouse. I think I learned some things. Um, and and if you don't bring ideas out and explore them, you most certainly can't find solutions. So it, it, it's about um, creating conversations. Um, we will be back next week. Uh, again, our we will be, I just want to mention to everybody, we will be taking our summer break beginning tw um, June the 26th. Uh, let me find my off button here. That can close this to the just and, and thank you for listening. listening. This, this podcast, podcast is streaming live on YouTube and twitch.tv and is designed for listener interaction. Visit the website the lion's den stl.wixsite.com forward slash home to join the discussion. The audio version of Altitude Adjustment is available where you get your podcasts, including Stitcher.com, the iTunes Store, and the Google Play Music Store, to name a few. Remember that the internet is powered by your likes, shares, and comments. 
So please like, share, and comment on this and other episodes of Altitude Adjustment because it matters. And as always, look out for the other guy because they may not be looking out for you.